My job was to drive around the countryside talking to farmers about economic development bonds. And here I am, a 22-year-old kid, and, you know, I'd be in their living room and the wife would look at the husband and say, but he's just a kid, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> nobody wanted to listen to me. So I said, and they, this is a day when people were smoking in the offices. These guys would be done at you know, three, 3 o'clock when the market closed. They'd light up a cigar, put their feet up, and tell old yarns. And I said, guys, who makes all the money in this business? And they said, well, the guy's on the floor. And I'm like, that, those are the guys I caddied for. See ya, I'm out of here. Welcome to Stay and Fight, a podcast about extraordinary Illinoisans who have made profound impacts in their communities and who, despite all the issues in this state, are dedicated to staying here and fighting for its future. I'm Matt Paprocki, president of the Illinois Policy Institute, and on today's episode, we bring you Tony Saliba. As you heard, Ketting changed Tony's career, and it shaped his life in many profound ways that we'll dive into. For years, Tony was the largest options trader at the Chicago Board Options Exchange and was the only one, period, to be featured in the best-selling book, Market Wizards, which profiled the world's best traders. He's a serial entrepreneur who's operated and invested nearly 100 companies, including the Liquid Point trading platform that executed 32% of all options trading in America and later sold it for nine figures. And today, he's the CEO of Mercury Digital Assets, the leading provider of digital asset and cryptocurrency market technology. Let's get started. Tony, so I wanted to talk about your start. You have a great story uh, about your family, and you didn't originally come from money. Uh, Can you talk about your family, what influenced you, and what drove you as a young man? Well, so I grew up in um, Ravinia, okay, which a lot of people, Chicagoans know Ravinia is a music festival venue, and it, but it's literally, literally a, a small hamlet nestled into Highland Park, very idyllic. And when I was growing up, there was one street where all of the blue-collar workers lived. It was a big, long cul-de-sac, maybe three blocks long to get in and get out. And there were, when I was in junior high, there was probably 80 some children on, on this, in this area. So there were carpenters and my dad was a carpenter and plumbers and electricians and all the trades lived there. And the bulk of the balance of the city were doctors and lawyers and I, uh, you know, was the oldest of seven. Uh, we had a two-bedroom house till I was about 14. And my dad and myself and our friends in the area and family built a house closer to Sunset Golf Course, which is on another part of um, Highland Park. But there was a lot of golf courses. And the guy that lived next door to me was a groundskeeper at the public golf course. And he would take me along with him like five in the morning on Saturdays and as he set up the sprinklers and everything for the greens to get ready for a big day of golf on the public course. And then I learned about caddying. And back then you had to be 13 before you could caddy at one of the country clubs. And Northmore Country Club was in Ravinia. 
And a lot of the kids that I went to school with, their parents were members there. It was a um, predominantly Jewish country club. And uh, I started caddying when I was 12 at the public course to kind of get my sea legs, if you will. And then I became a caddy at 13 in Northmore. And my eyes were open to a whole different world in terms of uh, people who were successful. And the parking lot every Saturday and Sunday was filled with, you know, beautiful cars, Corvettes and Mercedes Benzes and a young Italian boy from uh, the wrong side of the tracks, you know, got a a look to see what it was like to um, earn some money. And I worked very hard. I, I was the first person at the golf course every morning. Uh, I caddied even in the winter. I had some guys that would go out. They went out on Christmas and New Year's morning, and even in the snow, and played two, three, four holes until everybody was too cold. So I, I, when I turned 40, my friends were playing golf, and I did a, a calculation of all the, because I kept track of all of my loops. Caddy lingo for caddying a full 18 holes, a so-called loop around the golf course. And I still have that notebook. Um, when my mom passed on, my brothers showed me that she had kept this. Uh, it's kind of the forerunner of my options package. It's all it's a grid. This is, you know, circa 1967. And I kept track of all of my loops and who I caddied for and the weather and what they tipped and what their scores were and everything. It was like a database, right? And um, I did this calculation that if I played every weekend day and Wednesdays until I was like 40 when I did this, for the next 35 years, I still wouldn't make as many loops around the track as I did in the nine years that I caddied. So uh, people ask me if I play golf, and I honestly say no because I respect the game too much. And, uh, and also, I've been around the track a lot. So it taught me a lot. I got to know the, the, the men that I caddied for and some women that I caddied for that taught me a lot of life lessons. And that and the strong drive my mom instilled in us. And my dad, he worked two jobs all the time. He, my dad's still with us. He'll be 90 in September. And... Um, I just got back from spending uh, time with him down in South Florida. Um, so I think there was a lot of work ethic then. We were the, you know, kids from the wrong side of the tracks pretty much growing up. And we, I think, aspired to, you know, pull ourselves out of, I wouldn't say abject poverty by any stretch, but when you have seven kids and two parents living in a two-bedroom house, you know, I slept on the floor until... I was um, almost 14, so you learn to desire things, right? There's not too many kids that I know who try to get a job caddying at age 12 because they want to get another job at age 13. So where did that work ethic get instilled in you? Well, you know, I, I reflect a lot and look back, you know, my parents, my 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 dad was, you know, extremely hardworking guy. He would leave early in the morning um, in his dry coveralls and come home at five and switch into his grease monkey overalls, you know, with the sleeves and go to pure oil gas station to change, you know, oil and pump gas till 10 o'clock at night. So we only got to really see him on Sundays, except for that 
little brief 30 minute, you know, uh, time slot when he came home to switch gear and, um, and grab a bite. You know, my grandparents were hardworking Italian immigrants. And I, I just think the family, you know, all my brothers caddied and, um, just, I, I think it just comes from, um, family ethic. Now I will say when I met, when I started meeting and it wasn't like I met them, I caddied for, I worked for them, the members of uh, Northmore Country Club, they were all hardworking men and women, but they had succeeded. And so I could see what it was like. And I got a lot of my life lessons from them. So while you were caddying, it sounds like it's more than just a job. You were given mentorship or at least a vision of the future that here's what could be achieved through hard work. Well, George Abrams was a guy I caddied for and Lord took him early. Um, maybe he was in his um, 50s, you know, maybe 30 years ago or so. But he not only took care of me and made sure, you know, tipping was prohibited at Northmore. So they would tip under the table. And guys who caddy today, they make between 10 and 20 times what we did then. We would make $4 for per bag per round. And now guys are making like 50 to 100 bucks a bag per round. But George took me down to, he ran some clothing stores on the uh, near south side and, and I think near north side too. And then he would bring me down there uh, during the winter when they weren't playing and I would stock the stock room for him. You know, he sort of, so he kind of took me under his wing generally as a young man, men mentorship. You know, I would eat with the staff. I would, I got a, a feel for what it was like to run a business. That was his business. And uh, I babysat for him, too, on occasion. So there was a number of families that were very open to us caddies. Mrs. Richmond, I remember, would have me come over and do odd jobs. And my dad, like, um, did carpentry work for her. But she, they, you know, they looked out for us to, to a degree. But they were in my eyes, you know, super rich. They had everything. And I just said, well, I'm going to work hard till I can afford the things that I want. So, I mean, it, it was very impactful to say the least. So not only are you getting money, but you're getting great experience uh, with mentors and people who are showing you here's, here's a different path uh, than your father had to work, who was working two jobs for, for his whole life till he retired. But then on top of that, it also created the Evans Scholarship. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Evans Scholarship is, how it started, and then what it meant for your life? Chick Evans, Charles Evans, was the most decorated and famous amateur golfer in American history. And he started a scholarship fund for um, caddies. And I think Northwestern University was the first school to accept scholars. And, you know, I just need to brush up on some of my history. But when I was caddying, it, and today it still is, but it was the best scholarship that um, at the time only boys were getting, but the best scholarship a boy could get outside of a full ride sports scholarship. Okay. Remember full ride, right? I don't even think they do those today, but if you got an Evans scholarship, they paid your tuition they gave you a place to stay, and they, they helped you get a job 
working meals at a fraternity or sorority, okay? So you had room and board and tuition, which is still the case today, but you had to be in the upper quarter of your graduating high school class. You had to have financial need, which uh, back then, I think your father, it depend. They, they modified it over the years based on how many children you had, but back then you had to be at or below the poverty level, which I think was like $18,000 a year in compensation income. And then you had to be a cadet in good standing and get letters of recommendation from, you know, four members of like president and the uh, golf pro and your caddy master. So unfortunately, a very young Tony Saliba was interested in other things than um, applying himself to the academic at hand. Tony was more focused on sports and journalism, hoping to be the next Harry Carey. So he wasn't in the top quarter of his class and didn't get the scholarship. So he went to Northern Illinois University with his caddying money, reapplied after getting straight A's, and he got it on the second try. It allowed me to go to a great school. Not that Northern wasn't a great school, but... Besides academics, Indiana opened a lot of doors. I got involved with IUSF, Student Foundation, which is a fundraising arm of the university. I became a gunner in, in my junior year and was on steering committee, which is like the elite, elitist thing uh, that you can imagine at Indiana. 15 boys and 15 girls that ran all... You might have heard of Little 500, the greatest college weekend, that was all us. I mean, it was really heady stuff. It was a lot of fun, but you also got to interact beyond your um, social um, standing in life because mostly only the elite became steering committee members, and I was one of the very first uh, Evan scholars to get it and learned a lot from that, learned a lot about life, and that helped me um, get my first job, which was a stockbroker. So caddy, caddy connections are huge. We still, I'm still heavily involved. I help people. I helped a young lady um, navigate that same process. And she didn't get it her first time. And um, she's a senior now at IU, and she uh, keeps me updated on how she's doing. And she's going to probably go to Wall Street, and all because of having scholarship, which is a Chicagoland, you know, Western Golf Association out of Gulf, Illinois. It's such, I love that story. It's so incredible with, you know, Chick Evans. I think it's a great example of philanthropy paying it forward. So Chick Evans goes and he wins the U.S. Open and the U.S. Amateurs in the same year, 1919. But he doesn't want to go professional. So he, his mother would take the money and put it in an escrow account. And, and the, great, uh, the great part about this is that he doesn't want to go play professionally. He doesn't want to gain money. So it's in this escrow account. He goes to Northwestern and has to drop out because he doesn't have enough money. So he took that money in that escrow account and he paid it forward so that all other kids who caddied like himself could go to college. But then years later, you get the scholarship, right? When you need it the most, but then you've, you've gotten involved philanthropically where, you know, it's now awarded 11,500 full ride scholarships. And people like yourself have said, I'm going to step up and I'm going to invest in this program. Yeah, we have like 9,000 kids in, in the houses right now, I think, around 8,900 to 9,000. 
In just one recent year, Evans alumni and scholars donated $17 million back to the program. And Tony has given millions over the years. But back to when Tony didn't have millions, an Indiana University donor gave him a job in Indianapolis, which he thought was a stockbroker position. But it really was something entirely different. My job was to drive around the countryside talking to farmers about economic development bonds. And here I am, a 22-year-old kid, and, you know, I'd be in their living room and the wife would look at the husband and say, but he's just a kid, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> nobody wanted to listen to me. So I said, and they, this is a day when people were smoking in the offices, these guys would be done at, you know, at three, three o'clock when the market closed, they'd light up a cigar, put their feet up and tell old yarns. And I said, guys, who makes all the money in this business? And they said, well, the guy's on the floor. And I'm like, that, those are the guys I caddied for. See ya, I'm out of here. So I, um, so I went back to Chicago uh, to look for a deal. And I took a job as a clerk with someone else. And I, I saw Julian, rest his soul. Julian Good was a guy I caddied for him. And he recognized me. I hadn't seen him maybe in you know a few years. But he asked me if I knew what I was doing. And uh, I thought I did, and I told him I did. And he said, well, show me. And I put a couple trades on in his account, which was not really, uh, I was frowned upon. And he made money on it, and he was my first backer. So it was a good caddy connection, if you will. That's right. So you have a point that you make in here. So you get $50,000 to start, and you lose a lot of it. Like thirty-five grand right away. And then you talk about, at the same time, there was a, a plane crash. Do you remember this? Sure. Yep. Can you yep. tell us that story? Still think about it. Um, it was a Friday in May of '79. It was a, I think it was a Delta flight at, at O'Hare. It, it failed. I think it had failed in taking off and it crashed, and everybody on the plane was killed. It was the last really large um, air disaster at O'Hare, I believe. And I had just gone through just an, a horrendous, another horrendous day of trading. So I'd only really been trading for about 10 weeks or less, two months. But the money was going fast. And back then, 50 grand was a decent amount of money to start trading with. And the same guy I told I knew what I was doing, I had just... It was very simple. I bought too much premium. I was counting on volatilities to staying up. And it was, I think it was going into the Memorial Day weekend and they just crushed volatility. And, you know, I would do all my hand calculations at the end of the day. And I knew my account was down to around $15,000. And you remember back in the day, the newspapers, they had like the late edition that came out and there was a little candy store kiosk there, and I, you know, would do my numbers late and come down, and the late edition would be there by 4:30 or 5, and there was a headline. So that uh, they actually had a picture of the the plane, and I, I just thought I was walking out with an, another fellow trader who was also having a hard time, and I just said, "Man, I feel so bad. I would trade places with one of those people right now." Could you imagine feeling so low that you'd want to trade places? with people who died in a plane crash. So how did Tony pull himself out of this funk? There was an older guy, so I was 20, 
I was uh, 23. I hadn't hadn't turned. Yeah, I just turned 24. And um, there was a guy who was 30, who was also a new trader, uh, George. And he and I would walk along the beach on Saturdays and talk about our trading woes and try to get our heads straight and what what could we do differently. I mean, this was before computers. Nobody really knew how to trade options yet. I mean, relationship spreads and all that stuff. And I was very introspective. I've always used sounding boards and listened to other people and tried to uh, draw consensus. And I think um, this morning, um, prepping a little bit for our discussion, I was I was thinking about those days, about how much time I spent on the on the lakefront, and how unique that is to Chicagoans, where you're in a big city and you have this lake that visitors from other parts of the country think, wow, this is like an ocean. They don't realize it. And growing up here, you know, you could walk all day long up and down the coastline and walk up to Wisconsin or walk around to Indiana if if you, you know, wanted to. And it's massive and it has a very cathartic, uh, um, even as a young 20-something, it had a very cathartic uh, uh, impact on me. And it helped center me to a great degree. And eventually... I figured out uh, what I was doing wrong and and uh, got it right. And you turned it around. Turned it around uh, in in an amazing way. I mean, you you gave it a run there. Was it seventy straight weeks where you earned over a hundred thousand dollars? Seventy, excuse yeah, me, yeah. seventy straight months yeah. of earning over a hundred thousand. Six, yeah, about almost six years where um, uh, I was just I was kind of known for. When stealing second, I wouldn't have my hand on the base till I took my foot up first. So, you know, I was very safe trader. And a lot of people said, well, you could have made more if you would have taken more risk. But it just wasn't in my my makeup to take too much risk. I never swung for the fences. I always was trying to be in a position to hit singles and doubles. And then you'll be on base to score, you know, when the big events happen. And so, and it sounds like in in Market Wizards here, you used to talk about that. So you have your this major loss, and, and you're at a low point, and you decide, let me start making conservative bets. And on the floor, they nicknamed you One Lot. Yeah, and so you were ridiculed, pejorative, right? Yeah, you were ridiculed about only only buying selling a lot at a time. But you sounds like you stuck with that throughout your career, and it's it's largely obviously if you sold more than one lot. Sure, yeah. But that, that conservative, let me take one base at a time approach has has been part of your success story. Yes. So in for a while, for at least six months or so, I was uh, ridiculed as being one lot because I, you know, effusely, but you're, you're first, take more than one, damn it, you know. And then eventually I, I, I stepped it up after talking to Julian and uh, – I mean, Julian grubstaked me, but he didn't know anything about options. And I learned it all on my own, except one great thing that Julian, who was not a man of many words, he was a tall, dark man who spoke very um, sparingly, but to the point. And he called me one weekend and he said, I see the account's been doing pretty well. And uh, I said, yes, sir. And he says... "Um, but I see you're only trading one lots at a time because I was scared, right? It was low risk. And I said, yes, sir, I, you know, I don't want to risk anything. But the account's up pr- pretty well. You should be like a banker. 
when a banker has successful loans, he increases the size of his loans. And um, he says, why don't you try two lots? And I, I took that step. I did it two lot and next thing I did a five lot and before you knew it I was literally the biggest trader in the crowd um, I made him a lot of money and then a few years later I came to him and said you know I kind of want to renegotiate my deal and he goes why and I said well I I don't want a partner and he goes well we all have partners Uncle Sam I'm like well, I got him and you, <laughs> so I don't want two partners. <laughs> and we worked, we worked it out, but uh, we stayed friends, um, you know, until pretty much until he passed away at uh, age of ninety-three, about uh, six or seven years ago. So um, it was a caddy connection that you know had a life impact, and um, you know, I I've mentored. Uh, hundreds if not maybe a thousand people over the last 25 years uh we've had intern programs that have been as big as 30 per session 30 interns i actually had a person that her job was just to manage the interns uh i always have a few interns now but back in the 90s i was really into it and a lot of these guys and gals run trading desks or hedge funds or other, you know, financial organizations. They learned about options from us. So, Tony, you, you've, made, you've made your money, and you could, at, at a lot of points in your life, you know, at 30 years old, you could have moved. You could have gone out to New York. You could have, you could have traveled anywhere. Why did you decide to build your life here in Illinois, in Chicago, and why have you stayed? So during the 90s, I had residences in at the same time in Stockholm, Frankfurt, Milan, and Sydney, but I always uh, maintained my home in Chicago, which this November will be 41 years since I moved in there. Um, I love Old Town, uh, Lincoln Park, and, you know, I love Chicago. I mean, my family is here. My, my, my parents lived here all their lives well my dad moved here my brothers and sisters all live in and around the Chicagoland area uh, there's you know 40 of us uh, extent with uh, nieces and nephews so there's the family roots and I mean it's like the most beautiful city right I mean the architecture is amazing it's got a rich history I always said, even back in the 80s, I, you know, 70s and 80s, I said, you can get anything you want any time of day or night. You could, long before there was an internet, you could find a restaurant open around the clock. You could get every cuisine. And, and that's only been accentuated over the last 20 years with, you know, the great chefs that we have. Uh, I mean, Chicago is an international destination for foodies. I mean, clearly it is, right? And great sports you know sorry Bears fans I mean I'm a diehard Bears fan too but it's just I've always come back and the people of Chicago are just awesome people across the board hardworking don't suffer fools easily but not rude for the most part I mean I'm not speaking overly general about everyone but I have always found our neighbors and fellow Chicagoans and Illinoisans 
are good-hearted. When when I hear people from the Midwest, I just think about us. You know, I know that goes out to Nebraska or Ohio, whatever. But I really think about the people from Illinois and Chicago as being, you know, and Indiana. I mean, I've spent a lot of time there too. So, I think what's amazing about that is is you're talking about the intangibles, the your family, your community, the culture that's here, uh, the beauty of this city and, and what makes it a world-class city, and the problems we have, which we do have problems, they're man-made. Taxes, corruption, crime. The beauty for that, for me, uh, here at the Illinois Policy Institute is man-made problems have man-made solutions. Uh, and so that's what we're fighting for is, is how do we how do we address those problems that are man-made so that we can all enjoy the assets that we have? Because they're, they're plentiful. Can I ask you one more question about you've been engaged with the free market and you've traveled throughout the world and seen uh, the, the disparate effects of what a free market can do. Uh, why do you believe so much in the free market? And, and what does the free market, having a strong free market, mean to you? A truly free market of true meritocracy allows the human spirit of creation and achievement to flourish. I operated heavily in Germany and Austria and Italy and Spain and China a bit and uh, Australia. And you can rank them. There's nothing close to our free market, at least when it's truly free, I mean, you actually were asked to pay in some of those other countries, pay officials to get things done, to move you to the front of the line. It was not hidden. It was open, you know, and that was eye-opening to me. Um, or a partnership, for instance, in China. They're like, okay, well, who do you want to be your partner if you want to do business here? So it stifles our God-given human free spirit to create and, you know, find a solution for a problem or deliver something cool to somebody that you thought of, you know, so that to me is freedom. One of the things that I love about the free market is stories like yours. Somebody whose father can work two jobs so that he can have a better life for his children. In most countries, that's not a reality. If you're stuck in a lot in life, you and your descendants and your descendants have to live there. Uh, but your father worked hard and he created opportunities for you. And you went on to go and really change options trading. And you did that here in Chicago. Uh, Tony, this was wonderful having you on. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, Thanks, thank Matt. Thank you. You're awesome. Thank you very much. I, I could, if they didn't stop me, I have another hour's worth of content. <laughs> if you like this episode, share it with your friends and subscribe so that you don't miss out on the next one. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time on Stay and Fight.